9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from New York City. Also in New York general vicinity, we have our regular uh, co-host here on Thursdays, uh, Ryan Goodman, professor at NYU Law School, co-editor of Just Security. How are you, Ryan? Uh, pretty well, David. Thanks. And uh, other regular at, at this time of the week, who is uh, regularly keeping us up to date with the pandemic that will never end, Dr. Kavita Patel, uh, uh, practicing uh, physician, former uh, senior official in the Obama White House. How are you, Kavita? Hi, good. Thanks, David. And we are joined, and we are glad to be joined today, by Clint Watts, who is a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute, former FBI agent, former military officer. How are you, Clint? I, I am great. It's approaching at least the end of the Zoom day. Yeah, <laughs> the Zoom day. Uh, the Zoom day never ends for some for some of us. But um, uh, I thought we would look at some of the things that we see as looming threats. We're in the home stretch to the uh, election, uh, the the stretch where last election cycle we had a lot of developments from uh, enhanced uh, Russian interference to October surprises of a variety of sorts, uh, and we're starting to see some of that bubble up now. Um, so. I thought, since Clint is our, our, our guest for this episode, that we'd start with a question from Ryan, then one from Kavita, then we can go to a roundtable. Ryan, why don't you kick it off? Thanks. So, Clint, I thought it'd be a great opportunity to talk to you about the you know prospect of disinformation in the run-up to the election, and then use the specific example of the New York Post story that came out just yesterday, as, as we're recording this podcast on Thursday. So it's in the immediate, somewhat still immediate moment to try to assess it. But the first question I have is, um, what does the story, which I'll try to describe it in a little bit, say to you about the, the, does it have the hallmarks of disinformation? Does it have some of what you would see as indicators of Russian-based uh, disinformation? And then a second question uh, would be about the social media platforms response uh, to the New York Post um, article. So the, the story itself is allegedly, and I, I'm gonna just say allegedly like multiple times, allegedly Hunter Biden's alleged laptop was allegedly left at a computer repair store in Delaware. And then this laptop or its contents were allegedly um, shared with the FBI. And then separately the computer repair person at this shop um, after Hunter Biden allegedly did not come back to pick up his laptop, copied the contents of it. And then the chain of custody is that it somehow goes to Steve Bannon knowing about the contents of the laptop to handing it to Rudy Giuliani. Um, and then according to the New York Post, I, so this is like <laughs> the best reading of the situation, um, goes to Rudy Giuliani and Rudy Giuliani shares it with um, a Rupert Murdoch 
tabloid type magazine um, outlet, the New York Post, and then the New York Post publishes the story largely emphasizing supposed or alleged emails uh, between Hunter Biden and uh, people associated with the Burisma Corporation. And so one big concern is, is this itself a product of disinformation? Does it have the hallmarks of it? And to not set up so easy a question in a certain sense, one complication for me is, even if you accepted all of the allegations that are in that New York Post story, it still doesn't amount to much. It's like, it's such a nothing, nothing burger. Yeah. The very content of that email says nothing. I mean, I could go into the details of it, but it really says nothing. It doesn't add anything to the story. And even if it were absolutely true, it doesn't implicate Joseph Biden <laughs> in any wrongdoing or in any way add to the picture that we even have. So there's something to this whole piece of it that seems absurd, um, even if one accepted the New York Post story. And then they've had these other following stories. So that's just the first question. How do you read what's happened in that story? Uh, but Brian, it's emails, hashtag emails, <laughs> all right? That's how I read it. I mean, so this has always been the fascinating part when uh, we were doing the 2016 round of this, right? Which was no one reads the actual emails. Like no one actually, like I did because I was involved in this. And when I read it, I was like, this was Podesta's, right? I was like, this sounds like a campaign manager, right? Like this is what I know of Washington DC as it is. So I don't know. Yes. Uh, it's about uh, electoral college count it, or, you know, electors for the delegate. It just, it was ridiculous. So part of it is, the longer that chain and that chain that you just read, I'm, you remember it better than me after I've read it like two or three times, you know, we were writing it down on paper yesterday, trying to understand it. Um, each uh, element of that smear campaign is harder to understand and trace, right? And every time there's another element, then I immediately start to get suspicious because it's like, how would it flow this way? So there's two examples from 2016 of where you can see how it could be that complicated and how it wouldn't be. Um, access Hollywood tape, right? Smear campaign, sure. Is it disinformation? No. And how do you know that? Well, there's a video of Donald Trump walking off the bus, right? And there's audio that goes with it and you can just physically see it. And then the second one is Anthony Weiner's emails somehow have, you know, Huma, be, uh, Huma's emails from her talking to Secretary Clinton, which all turned out to be nothing, right? They go through it, they do the forensic exam and whatnot. But that is where you go, well, maybe some crazy scenario unfolds where Anthony Weiner is now the culprit in the 2016 election, right? Like, so sometimes that happens. But I think this ties into your, your second question about the social media companies this time. Here's what we do know leading up to this, right? We had the impeachment investigation. We knew about the parallel intelligence process with Rudy Giuliani and things that were going on in Ukraine all the way back to January, February, March, right? Like we had lengthy, we had a whole trial about this. Then you look at what, you know, Giuliani is doing uh, in Ukraine, which was very well known even in Ukraine circles. And the fact that he occasionally butt dials people when he's in meetings, you know, and it will randomly call people, right? So there's a lot of knowns there. And then the Nabu leaks campaign, which started over the summer. And so we were tracking that, which was, this is Andre Dukach. He's holding these press conferences. 
it's the exact same sort of notion, right? That Hunter Biden is the conduit to Joe Biden, which is to cor corruption. And these things are showing up. And what you see, interestingly enough, and I think this is where it gets complicated with the social media companies, is you see the US government start to move, the institutions and say, wait a second, um, this guy Drew Koch, there's more that you don't really know, right? And that essentially leads to Nabu leaks getting knocked down sort of consecutively on the social media platforms. It also leads to the Department of Treasury, ironically, designating him essentially as a Russian agent in Ukraine. And so this sets up the fall where it's like, is this foreign disinformation or is this just political, you know, machinations that are happening in the US with no foreign connection? And then it's the liar's dividend, right? So if you drop it on October 14th, it, the technical forensics of a computer you don't have, uh, how do you figure out uh, photoshops of PDFs of emails that were from a computer that's only one year old, like the technical stuff doesn't really line up very well. Uh, some of the reporting from that, one of the reporters seems to be very junior, maybe worked for Hannity, right? It looks like a political production. And this is where I feel Twitter and Facebook a year ago, right? All the social media mm -hmm. companies, all the US institutions are preparing for an October surprise. They're preparing for it to be a foreign drop. Uh, there was a discussion in January. I think it was January. Uh, Nicole Perloff, you know, reported about Burisma being hacked. So it lines up, you know, with the emails. And then what happens yesterday? They have their playbooks ready. We're going to stop foreign disinformation in the election. It comes out of the New York Post. It feels like it. It smells like it. Boom. You know, they launch to try and stop a disinformation campaign. And now they're on the other end trying to explain like is this foreign or not because if it's not foreign then i'm censoring u.s speech but i don't know mm -hmm. that because i don't have the computer and who drops off their computer at a delaware computer shop and doesn't go back and get it when they're hunter biden and has a barista i mean the, the whole thing is pretty fantastical right that would be like literally saying like i have a bag of compromise i'm gonna go dump it at a shop <laughs> in delaware right and leave it and it is hunter biden right so who knows but I think the point is like, now it's like the damned if you do, damned if you don't thing, whenever you have political leaders who don't act responsibly, right? Like just rewind four years to think that we had Manafort who was, you had the entire Mueller investigation say that Konstantin Kilimnik was a Russian agent working with Manafort, Manafort part of the campaign. This time you have the treasury department saying, Trump's treasury department saying, Rikach is a Russian agent. He's working with Giuliani. Giuliani shows up on air and he's got this kind of fantastical story from Ukraine again. So that we're running another version of that again. We've prepared all these systems for it. And the system, I think, ultimately is going to fail again. That really just comes down to the behavior, you know, of the leaders and their campaigns. That's still the big weak spot, I think, in all of it. It's been interesting to watch the different media outlets wrestle with it, too, over the last 24 hours about how to report on it. Yeah, you know, Kavita. Before you step in there, I have to say, listening to that chain of custody, it's so shady that the only way that I thought you could make it shadier is to actually have Boris and Natasha from the Rockin' Bullwinkle cartoons carry handing it forward. But then I realized that Durkacz is kind of Boris. <laughs> the only person you're missing is Natasha, um, because the, here is Rudy Giuliani, who everybody has been looking at for this exact kind of shenanigans since the impeachment, doing it with a guy that Steve Mnuchin's Treasury Department 
says is a Russian agent. I mean, you know, they, you couldn't, you're, they must be all out of red flags. All the red flags are gone um, because they've been used on this. It's, it's crazy. Um, anyway, Kavita, that was just my editorializing. Yeah, let, go ahead with a question. No, no, that's a, it's a great, it's so true. I, we, we, do, we do need a Natasha. We, we can certainly find someone. I'm confident of that. Um, Clint, I just want to, it's, it's a little bit of a near tangent, uh, but one of my favorite reads of yours is from, for people who don't know, to go to fpri.org and you've got, it's now July. I'm, I just had to look it up. The uh, seven potential disinformation disasters headed into election yeah. 2020. Um, I, I, you know, when I first read it and I think I saw it on Twitter and, and then read it and thought, okay, this is, you know, yeah, this is not as likely. Maybe, you know, one or both candidates can contract COVID-19. Here I am. So now how many of these are true? Clint, do you mind not just reflecting on kind of where we are and kind of what could now through, we are in the election season, it's not happening in, in several weeks, it's here. So what what can we potentially expect? And, and maybe it's just restating some of, I, I'm sad to say, but so much of your disinformation disasters are not potential, they feel real, yeah. um, but just kind of your comments and, and any insights and just, I'll say this, um, I, I spent a lot of time with kind of uh, Latinx and kind of communities of color, and they're all bracing, Clint, for kind of violence, no matter what the outcome. And, and, I, and I don't mean that in an, they're not bracing for it, meaning plotting. They're bracing for kind of urban violent acts to be leveled upon communities of color and have kind of some part of that. I, I'm just curious if, if you mind commenting and again, get get anybody listening to to go to Clinton's kind of July 2020 article because almost all seven of these potential disinformation disasters feel very real, not just potential. Yeah, so we started prepping that with our team to track disinfo um, before COVID, not knowing that COVID was going to happen. So we were kind of lining up on the year, and it was like, okay, what are the big things that we're worried about? Um, and it was all foreign. And then it started to become very clear it's going to be more domestic disinfo this time around than foreign, right? Like there's just all these groups pushing out content. Jacob Wool and, you know, uh, what is a turning point in their own troll farm got shut down. You, you know, the idea that it was going to be foreign quickly was getting buried over the domestic stuff. I think the other issue is once COVID started, it was interesting how COVID to protest, we were just tracing so much disinformation around that. And how, particularly in the case of Russia, they used it to point to uh, election rigging, voter fraud. This is by May. They were already signaling that way. And they're echoing the president to a degree, but they're also, they see it as an opportunity. You're not going to be able to vote both sides of the spectrum. You're not going to be able to vote safely. Your democracy is a failure. And But if you do vote safely, it won't be counted, right? Like that was the Russian approach. You lose-lose. Mm -hmm. So... Then the other thing was I had talked to people even back in the spring early on that were in working in government that were calling the president patient zero, you know, sort of internally. They were just that he continues to have meetings, right? He doesn't really follow the protocols. And then you saw him saying, I'm not going to wear a mask. And it, I just knew as the election got closer, he's he is a person who wants to do rallies if he can't do them. Like the Tulsa rally was clearly a bad idea. And he should not have been, you know, participating in that. And people did not show up. And those that did, like Herman Cain, ended up, you know, dying 
So it, it was likely that it would. And I was also just worried for Joe Biden that he would also feel the pressure to be out in the public if the other. So that then with the protest of being, as soon as I heard kind of like, you need to mobilize, you need to show up to protest and watch the provocations in Portland. Uh, when I was a new FBI agent, I was in Portland. And those same protesters have been there for 20 years, right? They, they protest there every day, Pioneer Square. You know, they have different, the World Trade Organization. You remember 20, 22 years ago in Seattle. That's persistent. And so when you put federal officers in there, you're creating a provocation to then broadcast out. So you could see how this was going to mobilize. And the text message chains, we were getting about three busloads of Antifa showing up to our town. You could see this was going to run wild. So that is where my biggest worry is today is we spent all this time worried about foreign disinformation. I'm most worried about provocations and disinformation about polling places, ballot boxes, sending people to the polls as poll watchers, which the president has mentioned, you know, he's discussed this and that intimidating people not to vote or they do show up and guys with guns show up. And for a local precinct, I think Kenosha, Wisconsin is a great example of what happens when social media allows everybody to rally quickly. Um, that town was overwhelmed. You maybe have a hundred police officers in that town. So if this kicks up in 24 hours, there's no state that can respond to that very quickly. There's no local police force. If it's not a major city that can really respond to something like that. And that gets me very concerned. And then I think also the idea is that they'll fight regardless of the outcome on, on, on election night, or even if it takes 10 days to decide the vote, there's going to be so much disinformation trying to get people angry or mobilize in that interim period till inauguration day. I, I, I'm praying that the last one doesn't happen, uh, which is the electoral college. You know, that will create some long run friction because it makes a lot of foreign disinformation true. Vladimir Putin talks about this. He will say, how come the loser of the popular vote is your president? Like, you know, he kind of makes a very valid point. Why do you uh, poke fun at me uh, about ballot stuffing or suppressing an election whenever your, your losing candidate wins, you know, and that really hurts our democracy, I think, worldwide. That's Adding right. the chaos and the electoral college together, it really doesn't look like a strong system. Yeah, that's a really good point. I would say, by the way, that uh, our uh, Monday co-panelist regular for many, many years, five years, Ed Luce, has a column in this weekend's Financial Times on the upcoming constitutional crises that the United States is likely to face after this election. And I strongly encourage everybody who's listening to go and read it. It is compelling and disturbing. And we are actually going to devote all of our Monday podcast to a deep dive with Ed and Rosa Brooks, also a regular, uh, is quoted in it throughout, and um, Norm Ornstein. Um, anyway, I was going to go to another round of questions, but Ryan, you have raised your hand, it seems to me. Do you have a question you want to throw in? Yeah, I just want to circle back with Clint on the disinformation that we can expect either in the up run, you know, the run up to the election or what some are referring to as the interregnum, the period between the election and January 20th, and the social media companies' policies for grappling with the disinformation, which is somewhat shown to us through the New York Post story again. Yeah. Um, and, there, and, and now apparently the Senate Judiciary Committee is going to be subpoenaing um, 
the, the head of uh, Twitter to appear later this month. So the question is, Facebook's policy, which didn't seem to be clear even to some of the experts in the community until <laughs> in the last 24 hours, is if they identify something as potentially disinformation, they will already kick into action and reduce the distribution of it. So they'll interfere with their own algorithm until the fact checkers are able to assess it. Right. And so one question there is the transparency of that. Do we even know what's in that decision-making calculus on the part of Facebook and what exactly they're doing? Because apparently the New York Post article still was extraordinarily widely circulated despite whatever actions they did take to quote unquote, reduce the distribution. So that's Facebook. And then Twitter is a somewhat different story because my understanding is Twitter applied a policy of the fact that the material had been hacked or seemed like a hack and dump operation to which some journalists are saying, well, wait a minute, some of our best stories are based on data and information that's Mm -hmm. provided to us that was not necessarily acquired through um, legal or non-illicit or illegitimate means. Right. So so their policies as we go into this period would be helpful to have uh, you talk about. Yeah. So I don't know their exact decision making, you know, on the inside, like how do they make those decisions? But they've definitely put a lot of thought into it. And they definitely put a lot of thought into it about this month, you know, October before the election. And so it's interesting how other countries like you know, France will do a media blackout, you know, to try and prevent these sort of last minute manipulations, things like that. So what I find interesting is I, I do like the Facebook approach in the sense that they said, we're not going to say absolutely no, but we do know that if you're trying to game our system, we're going to put some context around it. But the question is always, it's sort of a black box in the inside. You don't know what triggers those decisions other than it's an election would it have triggered a month ago? You know, I don't think anyone really knows. They also haven't ironed it out. And this is also, I think, part of the discussion that I wish the social media companies would have with Congress, which is, if you want us to please things, just tell us what you want us to do, right? Which I have to credit the European Union a little more for just being like, this is no, and this is our time expectation, and this is whatever it is. And I think the companies would be fine with it. I mean, ultimately, companies are designed to make money, and if they know what the boundaries are, they'll just do it, right? So, they're going to go and uh, they call it, you know, gaming the ref, essentially, which is maybe what this is all about, ultimately, in the end, is to just trigger this sort of debate about, you know, conservatives mm-hmm. being censored, even though Fox News is on any given day the most traffic thing on Facebook, for the most part. So with Twitter, I find it interesting because uh, the hack thing doesn't work because a lot of things are hacked and dumped, you know, out there or dropped. Um there's also a question if the story is true that Hunter Biden, for some reason, stumbled in and dropped his laptop, then is that a hack or is that negligence on his part, right? It doesn't necessarily apply. So I think they'll get into some problems with that um, to a degree. Um, but I do like the idea of like, if it's an election season, it's an election story, and then you're up front with the editors of the newspapers and they're dropping a bomb like that, maybe they could, if you actually did this and you thought it through, right, you could say, how about you put your story in for fact checking mm. uh, embargoed, you know, in advance? Like if it's that consequential, you could design systems around it. I just I think this is a continuing evolution of us trying to get our heads around what's the worst behavior we're going to see on the Internet and how to 
how to handle it, you know, structurally. My biggest disappointment with the social media industry as a whole is that they've not worked together to do this. They seem to think they're competing with each other, but if they made mm -hmm. universal standards around closures of accounts, like uh, Russian disinformation, they shut them all down across the board simultaneously. You know, that would be super helpful. Same thing, I think, in terms of judging content. If they could do like a quick convening, they could quickly make a universal decision and they would have better ground to stand on, which is interesting in the cybersecurity sort of technical, uh, the CISOs at like major banks and manufacturing stuff, they all know each other and they kind of do that sometimes. They'll information share because they realize they don't compete on cybersecurity. I think it would be interesting if the social media companies could learn that they are not competing on how to administer the internet to a degree. Okay, so I, what I would like to do is switch tone here. We've got about uh, 15, 16 minutes left to go. Um, and and pick up on the thread of what's likely to happen between now and the election. Uh, and the first way I'd like to do it is I'd like to sort of say there's kind of three buckets that I'm somewhat concerned about. One, and I'd like to turn to you first about this, Kavita, is COVID. Come back to that in a second. The second, um, I turn back to Clint, has to do with cyber or violent intervention, um, whether it's by domestic actors or foreign actors. And the third one, Ryan, I, I'd like to turn to you on, and that is legal shenanigans, things that are going to go on in the courts between now and election day or after election day, um, because we're already seeing a bunch of that. And, and um, if you want to, because you worked, you and Clint can fight over this one since you both worked in one way or another for the Department of Defense. If you'd like to talk about Secretary Esper's comments um, about sending troops into polling places um, uh, or his refusal to rule that out, I, I, that's something else you can address. But let me start with Kavita. And, it, and if I may, Kavita, I'd like to frame the question in a, in, a, in a very sort of personal, uninformed way. The past week or two, as I watch the data animations that we're seeing, and I watch people like you on TV, and I listen to other experts that I know and swap emails with them, it seems to me that not only is COVID getting worse, not only is COVID heading for a third peak as the New York Times warned, it could be worse than the prior peaks, um, that this thing could accelerate rather rapidly. And that as we come close to the election um, and in the days immediately after the election, we could be facing as the Europeans are new lockdowns new disruptions in society, and that those could conceivably affect the election day or not. So first of all, am I right to be worried that we could be heading to an even worse place with COVID? Uh, and secondly, how do you think that may affect this period? Yeah, no, you are right to be worried. I think, uh, and, and here's why, I, it's, it's certainly not limited anymore to the geographies that we saw, you know, kind of March and April. So if you look at the peaks that the New York Times talks about, kind of that first set of peaks in March that did lead to what eventually was a national stay at home kind of recommendation. And then we had a kind of a second peak, still a first wave, but a, a little bit of a dip and then a blip up in July. 
which is when we saw kind of Southeast and Texas and some other states. And I think what's really concerning about trends now is that you're seeing Midwest states, Wisconsin, et cetera, along with kind of spots in New York and California. So you're having a bit of a convergence of the two peaks that we saw in March and July. And given that we also now have the winter season with people like the four of us who are just tired of you know whether we've been at home or whether we've been at work and kind of wearing masks, there's just kind of fatigue has set in. So we're at this time where you could actually see all of those things coming together, cold weather, a flu season that could be maybe even at the same levels as the past, but bad enough. Um, and then also true coronavirus cases combined with I think there's been a lot of like misinformation, quite frankly, about how to vote in person safely, as well as concerns about how to do it. So I think all of those things are reasons to be concerned. And then just to put more statistics upon it, we're approaching 60,000 cases in the last 24 hours, which is a market increase from the previous 24 hour periods. We're also seeing an uptick in hospitalizations. Those are two trends you just, you know, they're highly correlated obviously, but they're trends that are not good. And you can talk about why they're happening. They're not just being driven by young adults. We're starting to see hospitalizations in kind of the vulnerable, more older population. So it is, it is concerning um, and we haven't had enough treatments and certainly we don't have a vaccine, but we haven't had enough progress. We've had some progress in treatments, but not the kind that reduce mortality the way we, I can promise in about two to three years we will have, but we just don't have the progress to really take care of everyone that's hospitalized and promise that they can get out of the hospital safely. So you were right to be concerned but we're all just tired of talking about it, to be honest. And I think that's where you have this. And, and, and on top of that, we still don't have a national strategy. So you're not seeing you know, task force members, you're seeing Fauci kind of in spotty places, Burks warning people, but you do not see anything that's kind of really operationalized. You've got a, an administration that's concentrating on trying to desperately win an election and not dealing with kind of the matter at hand, so right to be concerned. Well, it's even worse in that respect, because during the spring, there was some ignorance and mixed messages from people in the government. Now, President Trump and a bunch of his supporters have sort of stuck their flag in the sand and said, no masks. Yeah. This is going down. Right. The true test of whether you're a real American is if you ignore the scientists attacking right. Fauci. So they've become even more reckless. Right. Yep, that's right. All right. So, Clint, what, what, what about building on what we were just talking about, but imagining what might happen, particularly as we sort of head towards um, an election uh, period in which Donald Trump looks like he's in trouble. And so, you know, people are kind of throwing stuff at the wall to see what sticks. What, what, what worries you? Uh, so in the cyber respect, um, it's interesting. I don't think the Russians have a strong play and they also know they'll be retaliated against, I think this time, right? If it, I, it seems like the institutions have a plan. I don't know what it is. Uh, I hope we don't know what it is. You know, like the idea is if Russia does something, we're going to fight back this time, which is great. China as well, or Iran. Um, my concern is kind of 
would we see even a domestic generated type of cyber attack or uh, just the creation of disinformation to affect how people vote on election day? That worries me a lot. One of the ones that sticks in my head is it was a Georgia polling place. And I think it was two years ago in 2018, but I, I need to be fact-checked on it, which was uh, there was concerns about a hack and then maybe the voting booths were shut down. It was like, well, maybe someone didn't bring a power cord, right? Like this just creates such a tense, we're already so braced for it that it all it takes is a New York Post kind of story about a laptop to send people flying off the rails because they're angry and they're scared at the same time. So they tend to believe things they would not normally believe or they will jump to conclusions. Combine that with the mobilization piece. When we're tracking in social media right now, there are many groups talking about mobilizing that are somewhat nonspecific. However, if a political leader were, or a group of political leaders and campaign officials were to point to specific places and take this generalized threat of mobilization to specific precincts or specific locations, really the election's down to six states, right? And they start aiming it that way. That can create kind of a catastrophe on election day and beyond where were votes not counted uh, somewhere outside of Milwaukee, right? It could be a decisive state. And I really worry about both sides of the political aisle moving in very, very contentious ways. We've seen it just with the George Floyd protest over the summer. Um, that's my, my, my deepest worry. I, I thought we'd be tracking Russia stuff right now, and we're almost all tracking like stuff that's happening inside the United States at this point. Yeah, and I, and I should point out to the listeners that today, the day we're taping this, which is Thursday, the president of the United States again referred to the governor of Michigan, who was the target of, of an of a extremist terrorist group um, plot, as a, as a wannabe dictator. In other words, he was using inflammatory language, suggesting that the people who moved on Gretchen Whitmer um, were right to do so. And, it's, and it suggests that he's there backing, back, backing it up. Ryan, in, on the, in, the, in the bucket that I sort of just assigned to you, what, what do you see? Um, so I guess I see three fronts. Um, one is very concerned about Bill Barr's um, weaponization on politicization of the Justice Department, especially this um, leaked email that said that the Justice Department is gonna be changing its uh, policy on not taking any public actions with respect to voter fraud in the run-up to the election. And why would they change the rules on that um, under Bill Barr's leadership is very concerning because I think he's trying to maybe lay the groundwork for delegitimizing the election and saying there's a whole bunch of voter fraud. So it's if they can be public about ongoing investigations like we saw with the one in Pennsylvania with the nine ballots that turned out to be nothing, then he started to create the narrative. And I think that's what's very important for Donald Trump is setting the narrative. Um, so I think that's one angle. Second one is the one you identified, David, which is some use of military force and maybe it's DHS forces um, around civil unrest related to the election. And then that's the Politico report that we just saw where there are two members of the House that are raised a flag that Esper in answering questions put to them would not state clearly that the US military will not be deployed 
around polling stations and around the election. And instead, he wrote something that I can see must have come from, um, as far as I can tell, the place that I used to work, uh, the Office of General Counsel. It seems so lawyer, you know, lawyer. The statement he made to them was, quote, the U.S. military has acted and will continue to act in accordance with the Constitution and the law, end quote. And they obviously raised the flag, like, why are you not saying what General Milley is saying, which is, no, there is no role for the military. It is the role for the judiciary uh, to adjudicate, like, contesting the election and things like that. The only thing I'd say to that is that maybe what he's trying to do is not provide the option of use of military force, but instead to keep his head low. Um, and out of the way of being whacked by the president. And this is a better way for him to do it. Um, and then I guess the last one I'll just say is the grab bag of voter suppression and litigation, that the only real goal of it is to get it to the Supreme Court so that um, a supermajority of conservative justices uh, get to decide, uh, as happened with Bush v. Gore, and with uh, Justice Barrett being able to cast uh, one of those votes uh, out of the hands of John Roberts because he can't uh, be the deciding vote anymore with her on the bench. So let me ask you in the five minutes we have remaining, each essentially the same question, but not for the period through November 3rd, but for the period from November 3rd till the certification of the election results. What kind of things do you worry about in these various baskets that will color that period if in fact it is a contentious period? Kavita. Uh, yeah, I, I still think that this disinformation kind of at polling sites is, in, and whether that disinformation is around threats to personal health, personal safety, I mean, it is incredibly tangible. And I, I can sense it in Virginia and Pennsylvania, which I'm pretty close to. So I, I worry a great deal about that, including driving a sentiment, David, where even though Biden's leading by over, you know, 10 10 percentage points in many polling in many polls, it's driving people to think this election is rigged. There's just no point. Our vote was always going to be suppressed. So what's the point? And that that is destructive on so many levels. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Clint, same question. I I, I should point out though, Kavita has reminded me that we had another instance that was a little bit aligned along the lines of what you were talking about a second ago, Clint, where voter registration went down in Virginia mm -hmm. the last day it was possible because of a cut fiber optic cord, right. which, you know, again, that's the kind of thing where when you, in the past, when you saw it, you'd go, that's, you know, how, do, how, do, how did that mistake happen? But now you see it and you think, what part of a conspiracy is that? Yep. It, the QAnon phenomenon colliding with election day COVID-19 and disinfo and then being harnessed for opportunism by politicians, I think is my doomsday stew um, that's out there. My hope is that, and I, I'm not even going to talk about the outcome uh, to an extent. I just hope that it's decisive. Like very early on, the longer, the faster we can come to an outcome and everyone, 80% of Americans can, you know, have a consensus okay, it's over, uh, the better off we'll be. We would not make it through a Bush v. Gore this time. I don't, I, I, we would make it through. I mean, but, but I, it would never go that way again where it kind of just goes to the courts. It would be, this time it's going to be 
sort of anarchy, you know, in certain quarters, I think, if it were to go to that this time. And if I've learned anything over the last four years, or really six years, is that Americans do not understand civics or the legal system very well. <laughs> and so they can be easy, easily manipulated with these conspiracies. Um, and I, I know <laughs> that one campaign and one president has probably got their talking points of disinformation down as a science of what they're going to say on election day and what they're going to say after the election day. They already know it right now. And so we were talking about a playbook for this New York post story. You're going to have to have a playbook every day. If you're one of the institutional leaders, you know, a state and local leader, if you're a journalist, if you're a social media company, you're going to have to have a daily playbook of like, how am I going to deal with what's coming at me this day? It's not really going to be about just the election. It's going to be just a, an onslaught. I think of it. And by the way, I think, uh, uh, your earlier point about there being certain um, precincts, certain communities that are going to be pivotal in the outcome of this, if it's not a landslide, uh, suggests that um, if you are going to foment popular unrest, it might be better to do it afterwards when you knew what those communities were. Exactly. Because the media will not cover the substance of the story. They will cover what's going on in the street. And if there appears to be violence and unrest in the street, and, and, and it seems to be, um, you know, close outcome, it's going to be a very, very murky picture. And if it then diverts to, reverts to courts that are um, politically uh, motivated, and as Amy Klobuchar pointed out yesterday, there will soon be three people on the Supreme Court of the United States who actually worked in the legal team on Bush v. Gore, mm -hmm. which is astonishing and not a coincidence. Ryan, what about you? Um, I mean, I echo the same things that Kevin and Clint said. Um, I think those are the doomsday scenarios, and I don't think they're so outlandish as not to be considered very plausible and people need to start planning for that. And um, Jay Rosen from NYU has also written about how the media and newsrooms need to uh, start gaming these out as scenarios, um, which I think is very important that they bring in that kind of intelligence analysis of uh, different scenarios of disinformation and the like. Um, and, you know, I'm, and I, at first I thought I might be in disagreement with Clint, but I'm not because I think it's definitely true that the greater degree to which this is decisive earlier on, it reduces the risks of all of these things. I, what I do also worry about is that that will not stop Donald J. Trump necessarily because the relationship between to factual reality and how he might engage in disinformation is just vast. So if it's a huge landslide, he'll say, see, I could never have lost by that amount. Um, the fact that he could invent millions of um, votes that were cast uh, for him in 2016 and he actually won the popular vote or all sorts of things like that in the last 24 hours he's gone out ahead of QAnon on some of his conspiracies about seal team six not actually having killed osama bin laden so but none of that is in the end in any disagreement with what clint said because the greater degree to which there's a decisive outcome earlier on will minimize the risk of what that cauldron looks like with Donald Trump fighting it 
um, at that point. And I guess the only last thought is something a little bit more optimistic. I kind of need to also go back to the tape and be fact-checked about this to see if it's right. But I remember, I'm pretty sure about this, in Mary Trump's interview with Rachel Maddow about her book when it first came out. At the very end, she said, knowing her um, uncle, uh, Donald J. Trump, if the election is decisive in that way, he maybe walks away because he gets, so. can't deal with the psychology of a loss and that stench. And what he does is he crawls away. Um, but that happens, and she said it as well, if it is a decisive outcome. So that maybe some of these other scenarios um, don't get played out um, in that uh, climate. Okay. Well, we've run out of time. I do want to point out, uh, again, for the benefit of the listeners, something that uh, I, I know all our guests know, and many of you listening know, but the purpose of disinformation is not to get people to believe far-fetched stories. It is to get people not to believe the truth. It is to get people to question the sources that they've got. It is to create confusion. So you might listen to a story, and anybody who's from New York knows that if something appears in the New York Post, it's probably not true. You know, the New York Post is the least credible news source in New York. It doesn't really matter if you think, well, this is far-fetched. It matters if enough people, and there's you know enough examples of it, that people start questioning their media sources, questioning the truth, because it creates an opportunity for people who want to peddle an alternative truth to do so with just that much more credibility. In any event, uh, we will follow these things closely. And as we get close to the election, or perhaps immediately afterwards, perhaps, Clint, we can persuade you to come back. I will. Uh, we I'll can... be right here. Okay. <laughs> and, well, good. Uh, and and and, uh, and hopefully staying safe while you're there. And of course, Ryan and Kavita, we'll see you again uh, next week for more of this. Um, who knows? Maybe it'll be uneventful. Maybe we'll just head to a big landslide uh, and uh, everything will be great because that's the way the last four years have gone. Um, in any of it, thank you everybody for listening. Go to the dsrnetwork.com for more information about the broadcasts we've got coming up. We've got a couple of uh, webinars coming up, which essentially are podcasts that you can actually uh, join us for and pose questions to the guests. And so you'll see some information about those over the next couple of days. Very interesting ones pertaining to subjects a little bit like these. And uh, uh, you can also sign up and be a member there, help support what we're doing. So the dsrnetwork.com. Thank you all very much. Stay healthy. Uh, and we'll see you all again soon. Bye-bye.